No, nobody knows when to act. Everybody's looking for the bottom, but th there's no indication of, of where that is. Let's get ready to scale. Welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts. I have with me Jeanette Robinson, Director of Investor Relations, and of course, Ryan Rizleski from our acquisitions team. Today, we're going to uh, talk about a few interesting topics. We're going to talk about the Fed's um, rate hikes, and there have been, seems like, daily developments. Every day, there's something else about whether they they'll increase rates or whether they're going to cut the, you know, um, cut rates. So a little bit of uncertainty, but it seems like the kind of um, the, the coast is um, being cleared a little bit. Um, we're also going to cover some initiatives or some early talks from institutions about um, new rescue funds and um, give you our you know, opinion and perspective as, you know, sponsors. And then um, on the flip side of it, uh, non-distressed, uh, you know, companies, we can, well, we'll talk about um, some uh, competitors out there that are being sold um, to other mega companies. So definitely interesting, you know, times and interesting topics today. Um, so let's, uh, let's get to it. Um, the feds, you know, they've uh, held their meeting late July. We've all heard about it. They're still aiming towards, you know, 2% um, inflation. And um, they're essentially indicating there might be another um, rate hike, maybe in, in November. I want to read to you from uh, the, the committee's, um, you know, notes, which are, you know, public. Um, it's probably not you know, huge news at this point. It's uh, almost a month later, but uh, there's actually some new development developments today. Um, but you know, th they're essentially saying, you know, and and, and I'm reading from uh, their uh, document. The committee um, seeks to achieve maximum employment and inflation at the rate of two percent over the long run. Uh, the committee will continue to assess additional information and its implications for monetary policy. Um, and so they, they keep, you know, going on and on, essentially saying we would like to see to get more information in order to assess what to do next. And it doesn't really seem like they're going to, you know, cut any rates. Um, however, you know, news from today is that uh, Richmond Fed, you know, President uh, Thomas Barkin said um, on Tuesday, just um, yesterday, that he kind of hinted that things were looking better than they thought when they held the meeting um, last month. Um, so they're saying that inflation, he's saying that uh, inflation stays high. And uh, I mean, there's a possibility that it stays high in the economy, uh, you know, strengthens. But, you know, if, if essentially he's saying, quotes, uh, if I got convinced that inflation was remaining high and demand was giving no signal, uh, signal, that inflation was going to come down, that would make the case um, for further tightening of monetary policy through, um, you know, higher interest rates. So um, essentially, you know, things are moving quick and changing. Um, and it, it's it's really hard to read the map and understand what the heck is going to happen, um, you know, next month. Um, I feel know, like what just... are your thoughts? They just use like a lot of great words to say, huh, I'm not sure. I'll let you know. 
I mean, that's really <laughs> what it all comes down to. The committee will continue to look, uh, the committee will continue. Uh, you know, the reality is, is that they can't do this forever because they're going to crush the economy and yeah. they cannot crush the economy. I mean, look at China's economy right now and a lot of the struggles that they're having. And the last thing we want to do is create, you know, some type of downward spiral for the economy. So I know that they understand the gravity of that, you know, and at the same time, they've got a job to do and they're trying to do their job in fairness. And, you know, they have been effective. So it is beginning to take, you know, effect. I personally think that it'll probably, we'll probably see at least, I don't know, maybe another quarter raise, maybe. I mean, I definitely think that they'll probably slow down because they can only, again, do this for so long before it's out of control. But, you know, yeah, I mean, that's my layman opinion. I don't know, Ryan, what do you think? Yeah, Jeanette, give me my crystal ball back. I, I know you stole that. So I, exactly what Ellie said is is really... The, the thing is, is the data's ba they're they're heavily reliant on the data, which is historical looking, right? So it's it's kind of a lagging indicator. Um, and the the July and August and inflation and, and jobs reports are, are a critical factor of any decision making. But exactly what Ellie was saying is, it, it it's the verbiage being used. It's it's the two percent target. It, it, it's irrespective of the nine percent inflation rate this time last year, it, and now we're down to three and a half percent. It's we are not at two percent, and the labor market is still strong. So the way the Feds are looking at it, and they were they were indecisive. There there was a split unanimous decision. Um, some some part of. Uh, the table versus the other part of the table where some said, you know what, I, I think we can pause and we will eventually organically get to 2%. It might take us a little bit longer to cool down. Whereas the other side of the table was saying, no, I need to get to 2%. And what, what's going to do that is taking the excess demand out of the economy and, and unemployment. What what rate does that need to go to? Does it need to hit 5%? It's been sub 4% since um, the, the early part of 2022. So I am a proponent of the labor market hasn't deteriorated deteriorated enough to warrant a pause. I, I think it is coming, but the way I see it is we want to the feds want to get there sooner rather than later. So instead of this time mid mid mid, let's say Q2 of 2024, getting to two percent through a pause or aggressively hiking again in September and trying to artificially get down to that 2%. But I think that 2% target is the number they're, they're striking for. Or we would have seen a pause in July. That That's just, that's where I see it, it, things kind of trending. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. Um, and we're in the real estate business, right? So we can definitely see the impact on their policy um, the indirect and direct, you know, impact. So we can't find loans today at 3%, 3.5% fix, like you could have two, three years ago. Those loans are long gone, unless, of course, you assume a loan and you essentially take it from, um, the, you know, the seller and you get into the seller's shoes um and, and we have one of those deals but um essentially those days are gone and so that really slowed the um transaction volume down and and that's you know it's it's uh one of the most direct impacts of um you know the feds doing but i would say also the indecisiveness in their voice um is essentially in, in the kind of the back and forth where nobody's saying we're gonna we're we're stop we're gonna stop um you know raising you know rates or we're gonna continue any sign and voice of um indecisiveness 
is causing the market. And what happen what's happening is that a lot of institutions and family offices, well, more institutions um, are not moving forward right now. They're sitting on the sidelines because they're trying to see when is it going to be the one voice of certainty, whether you're going to say we're going to increase and stop at date X or whether you're going to say, um, you know, it's we're done increasing rates. Once they know that they can bake it into their underwritings and um, and assessing the risk. But as long as there's that, like you said, we're, you know, we're decide that tone of we're decide to not decide right now, um, yeah. which, is, you know, as, as a former attorney, it's a very lawyery kind of way of saying, you know, protecting yourself when you're not really saying anything, um, you know, give me the information and I'll decide la at a later date. Um, that really, I think, scares still some investors. They want certainty. Whether interest rates are 9% or 2%, we can deal with that. That's what they're thinking um, or, or the way that they're they're thinking. We can deal with that. We can you know, bake it into our underwriting, but not knowing if it's going to be five or seven or 10 next month, we can't deal with that amount of uncertainty. And I think that's the the real um, impact of um, of the indecisiveness, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I mean they've been uh, there's been a lot of um, uh, um, I, I would say uh, backlash and um, criticism towards them that they've acted too slow and too late, and then all of a sudden, and not just like too late, didn't do anything what they should have. But, you know, hindsight is always 2020. Um, but, you know, in real estate, you always have, uh, you know, we were just sitting yesterday at a meeting with a potential partner and he said something very true. He said, you know, in real estate, there's always two, maybe three hard years. And then we have five to seven good years. And then the cycle, you know, it, we're, we're back into that uh, point now. Um, and that's definitely, you know, we're definitely in one of those downturn, uh, you know, um, downturns right now. Yeah, Ellie, that that's the word. It's it's uncertainty that's causing the volatility. Yeah. We just not not only investors, lenders, everybody's just looking for stabilization. They they just want to have. I mean, think about it. That that's what we're in business for, right? I mean, we 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 want the certainty of underwriting. We're looking at risk adjusted returns, but if you can't assess the risk um, because of these kind of subjective comments, uh, it's it's just it, it creates chaos in the market, and that's why, to your point. It, we're, there's a lot of, of institutional equity that's just on the sideline right now, right now because they're saying if rents in, if, if rates increase even further, then asset values will continue to fall if, if cap rates expand further. So no nobody knows when to act. Everybody's looking for the bottom, but th there's no indication of, of where that is. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you're if you're buying asset at a fixed rate, then at least you're. Um, I mean, it, it still doesn't help you, you know, maybe truly assess the valuation on the back end, you know, when, when you're selling and exiting the, the asset. Um, but at least you can get a more predictable cash flow. So if you are concerned about cash flow, you can take the that uncertainty out of the equation. So and that's what we do. We focus on fixed rate, you know, loans on the assets that we're buying um, right now. Let's um shift and talk a little bit about rescue funds. Uh, we've you know, it's it's interesting. Um, we've been for a couple of years now hearing from some investors, you know, we're waiting for all the opportunities out there. We're waiting to buy assets 60 cents on the dollar. They're going to be, you know, a lot of fire sales and distressed assets. And my view was always that you're not going to see it. Um, you're not going to see it for two reasons. One, 
lenders have learned their lessons from 2007. They're working with a lot, a lot of the distressed, um, you know, sponsors and assets. They they're working something out. Um, or essentially sponsors, what they do, they go back to their investors and they say, Hey, we need one, two, five million dollars um, to pay the debt for the next two years or so. And they raise money from their own investors. Um, and I've heard of some sponsors that already, you know, have done that. So there, there are options out there for, for sponsors. So you're not going, it's very unlikely that they're going to go to, let's say, CBRE and say, hey, we're defaulting on this loan, sell it to us at a fire, a fire sale right away. Nobody wants their name to be out there associated with something like this. And they have options, whether they restructure the debt with uh, the lender, whether they go back to their investors, or they go back to other partners and say, help us out on this deal. We'll give you a piece of the GP. We'll give you, um, you know, uh, a pref equity position in the deal. And they they work it out this way. Um, these are the main reasons why the average high net worth individual investor is not going to have access to those deals. And then you have those mega uh, institutions that um, essentially are, are are gearing up to raise money and deploy it for those uh, to buy those assets. I think they're going to find more opportunities in um, obviously in the office market where it's pretty clear. We all know oh, yeah. that. Yeah, it looks like every day there's another big player that you know just defaulted on a huge mega loan, and I think these where this is where you're going to see the opportunities with multifamily. I can tell them many times, you know, if I and we know a lot of you know sponsors, if someone is defaulting on their loan and they need to get out, they're not going to go to the Blackstones and Starwoods, you know, of the world. They're going to go to us, and they're going to say, "Help me out." They know it's going to be, you know, confidential, quick, quiet, and or to you know other sponsors, and that's how it's going to be resolved. Yeah, Ellie, I do have an opinion on this, and, and Jeanette, keep, keep your composure here. But it, it, it's a marketing tactic, right? I mean, when when I think of just so so, and I'll give you two examples. So when I think of rescue funds, that's just a marketing and, and all about perception. What I define that as is opportunity capital, right? So there there's a, a very fine distinction. Um, of the marketing process. And the reason I say that is because when I think of rescue capital, I think of the, the Red Cross disaster relief that's going to come in after a hurricane or a fire, because it's all about the, the implication on the recipient, right? So it has to be positive. When you think of rescue, somebody's coming to save me. They're looking out for my best interest, whereas I, I would more define those those funds that are being raised to kind of capitalize in 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 take advantage of distressed situations is what I would define as opportunity capital because the alignment of interest between the recipient who needs that capital and that one deploying it, it comes with negative implications. You're, you're, you could potentially be diluting equity. Um, and, and the, the best example that I, I would kind of use is um, if anybody's familiar with the, the dirty money series um, on Netflix uh, and Scott Tucker, the, the race car driver turned payday loan, who, who was actually um, convicted for racketeering and, and um, being a loan shark, is 
Well, which is kind of an, an unfair scenario because it's it's technically rescue capital or opportunity capital isn't necessarily illegal, but it's taking advantage of a distressed situation and profiting off of some level of distress or poverty. And, and that's exactly the case. So your, your last point of they're not going to go to the larger institutions of the world, meaning those those folks that are, are in need of that capital. They're going to go to a team that um, is looking to support them and, and find an alignment of interest. So instead of coming in and putting pref equity, diluting the common equity holders um, and, and increasing voting rights and, and more control over the asset, they're going to come to groups like us and say, hey, let's partner. Let's give up some of the promote on our end. We're, we're willing to share with you the upside for that level of support. So that's why I, I truly have an opinion on rescue capital and, and opportunity funds being raised to capitalize on the distress. And that's that, that I digress now, but I, I'm very passionate about about that because um, th there's two sides of the equation. There's support and then there's people taking advantage. That That's the way I look at it. Yeah, I actually also look at it almost like VC uh, to a certain extent, because and how distressed are we talking? Because the more distressed an asset is, you know, the greater the risk can be when you're making the investment. So when I hear rescue fund, I'm thinking like, wow, how much of a disaster is this that you're about to go in and take over? And, you know, that's not necessarily what would actually be attractive to like our types of investors, because those are deals that aren't going to cash flow potentially for years. That's more like family office, uh, VC groups, you know, people that can wait a good while for a big mess to get corrected. And so I, I think it's also interesting the term rescue um, you know, fund or rescue capital, because really the question is rescuing who and how and why and what. And are we just talking about, you know, a distressed operator or are we talking about a distressed asset? You know, and there's a big difference. So, uh, you know, it's interesting, but I mean, I do have to say being the capitalist that I am, that I love opportunity and, you know, there there's a lot of opportunity out there. So I think that that's what also a lot of investors are thinking too. And I think most people are just trying to figure out, hey, there's obviously a lot of opportunity coming up, but what are those actual opportunities and how do we identify the windows, you know, uh, to be able to take advantage of, you know, capitalizing on them? Yeah, yeah. it's it's business. I mean, it, it's, it, it happens, but it, when when senior leaders of some of these institutions are, are going on record verbatim saying things like our employees are foaming at the mouth for this type of distressed opportunities. I mean, it just goes to show, I mean, who, who, why are you foaming at the mouth? Because you're going to make a lot of money off of it, plain and simple. So I, I th there's there's principles, there's but but at the end of the day, it's business um, and, and how money's made and how equity is deployed. And, and, and all of these funds have uh, fiduciary responsibilities to their investors, and, and that's to preserve the capital and, and generate a return and, and seek alpha. But um, it, it comes in different forms. I, I have just to set the record straight. I'm not against rescue capital um, or rescue funds. And I think they're, they could be, you know, a great idea. Um, and we were also toying with the idea of, of doing something mm -hmm. similar. I just think that there's a, you can choose which, um, you know, structure to create. If you are uh, rescuing a certain deal or a sponsor, you can have very strict, um, uh, you know, stipulations in the agreement and you can say, you know, I, you know, I get paid first before all the other investors. Um, and, uh, and then they get screwed. Um, if, if the business plan doesn't work or you can say, you know what, I'll get a piece of the GP and we're going to help you improve the operations. 
And if it works, we're only going to take, you know, those uh, assets that we believe can actually generate positive cash flow at some point. And then the GP, the general partnership, those who manage the deal would be worth that, you know, would be worth something. And we're going to get compensated from that while all the other, their LPs that are in the deal um, will, um, you know, at least preserve their capital, not lose money. And then if we're bringing investors into that deal, we're going to split with them the proceeds on the GP side. So that way, when you're focusing on, I can make money here on the GP side, not on the account of the LP side, I think, you know, at least for a company, you know, um, where we are right now, the company at our size, um, I think it's really good also for reputation because what kind of capital are you looking for? And, you know, I definitely don't want to get involved in a deal that, um, I, you know, we're, we're going to get there, you know, invest the money and then um, force the seller, the, the, the owner to sell early. There's going to be enough money for the senior lender to get paid, enough money for us to get paid. And, you know, and then what's going to happen with their LPs, I'm not interested in those, you know, deals. I'm only interested in those deals that there's a healthy, um, you know, future. Mm -hmm. So we can get paid as managers, not on the account of, you know, LPs. It just, it, it just, otherwise it just, for me, it doesn't feel right. But um, maybe I'm a bit naive, you know, no, not at all. many ways to make money out there. No, I think too, you know, giving people more insight into kind of what it's like in the industry behind the scenes is the reality is. It, it's a small little world that we're yeah. in. There's, you know, right. we all at some point kind of know each other, meet each other, bump into each yeah. other, potentially partner up on a deal or two or three or four together. So, you know, the other thing too that people have to understand is that, you know, the idea that you can go in and try to be a shark and just like pirate, yeah. you know, create some kind of really not win-win partnership with another sponsor and not have that blow back on your reputation and make that information all the way through the network of other sponsors. We know, we yeah. hear, we hear yeah. everything. Everybody knows, we all know, you know, which sponsors are killing it, which sponsors are killing mm -hmm. their investors. Um, maybe I should have <laughs> said it in the bed, you know, nicer way, but we hear, we hear who's oh, out yeah. there, e even if there are uh, prep equity groups or, um, you know, some other programmatic partners out there, we know, or even lenders, we know who's a lender that uh, is, they, they call loan to own, meaning we know that they are lending you money at, you know, great in a dirt cheap interest rate. And it looks great at first. Mm -hmm. And you're saying, why wouldn't I get the best, you know, uh, interest rate out there, the best terms? But we do know that, you know, some groups there, which, you know, again, called loan to own, meaning they're just waiting for you to make that one mistake that the, the, the loan agreement allows them to take over and take ownership and take management. And that would be it. So it's a very, very small industry. Speaking of uh, <laughs> industry, um, let's talk a little bit about the Carol organization that was sold recently. And if you guys heard about it, $80 million, um, but Let's uh, let's talk about it after we hear a word from uh, our sponsor. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sunbelt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. 
This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital, be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. All right, we are back. So um, a few days ago, we all read that Atlanta-based company, uh, the Carroll Organization, uh, Patrick Carroll was, you know, it, was not anymore was the owner um these guys are atlanta-based multifamily um operators so for the listeners who are not familiar with them they have over 80 assets twenty-eight thousand units um mainly in the sun build mm -hmm. uh the company was sold for um 80 million dollars uh, they have about 7 billion in aum um and really the buyer actually fun fact we're sitting um in um in uh, Dedham, Massachusetts, very close to Newton, Massachusetts. And uh, the company who bought them is a Newton company, Newton-based uh, company, a group that owns industrial and office, retail and hotels. And now they collect, now with the new purchase, they have about uh, 43, 44 billion uh, in combined AUM. I thought it was a really um, interesting timing to sell. And, and uh, we were speaking with that organization um, for a while now trying to, you know, build uh, business relationships and partnerships. But um, it's interesting that it was sold now when, you know, the way that I think about it, why wasn't it sold two years ago? Definitely. Could have gotten a lot so more. Much. So yeah, right? it hurts my heart. And why would they? It's eighty million. Uh, yes, nice number, it right? is. That's true. It's yeah. a, it's a that's a lot of money. And maybe this yeah. is where you know my friends joke and tell me that you know they can't talk to me because it's like I'm talking about monopoly money all the time and it doesn't make sense to them because you know we talk about this kind of stuff nonchalantly and yeah. you do almost start to forget. So you're right. I mean, it is a lot of money. But it just seems like there is a lot left on the table, you know. I I I don't know. I don't know that. I haven't looked at. I don't have access to their financials. I can just say that um, this guy, you know, he's a pretty smart guy. He built a company. He built a you know great company. He exited um, at a nice price. I don't know if there's. I don't think there's any information about how much about his, you know his involvement um, post you know purchase. But um, it's definitely interesting. I haven't seen a lot of multifamily um companies that actually went public usually they either grow and and raise money from an investor um or um or they just exit and they sell it to another group um but you know they have uh, i think 700 people wow. so it's a pretty large organization um and uh, i think it's it's interesting i mean 7 billion in aum is pretty pretty Huge. impressive um, but, uh, you know, our goal is, is more ambitious than that. Maybe we'll, we'll record a, a podcast uh, episode about that, but, uh, yeah. Well, what do you think, Ryan? Yeah. I, you know, when I read that first headline, I, I know you immediately went to, um, kind of the Carroll organization to say, Oh, I wonder what they were thinking at the time, what they were selling and all I, I, the first instinct in, in, in my chair was, wow, what, a, what an acquisitional growth strategy of RM, RMR Group, which to your point is in multiple different asset classes and, and their growth strategy was through the acquisition of the Carroll organization to get exactly what you just said, 28,000 units in, in the Sunbelt market. So the way I look at that is their way to acquire an institutional organization to grow into the multifamily space because they weren't as prevalent in multifamily. So 
that transaction was very timely of RMR Group, but not only did, did they acquire the, the assets themselves, but they acquired exactly what you just said, the headcount, the talent um, of, of everybody in that organization. So when I think of these types of growth strategies of firms specifically relating to the acquisition side is you really have two ways to grow through acquisition, um, and that can go favorably or unfavorably. I mean, there's great things like, um, like I just mentioned, you're, you're, you're acquiring intellectual property, systems, processes, brands, um, exposure, you can reduce your cost structure, you can reduce the competition um, to grow market share relative to the organic route to grow into 28,000 units um, will, will take you in an abundance of time. Um, so that that's where I see the organic growth of, of increased pricing or growing market share um, is a lot more difficult. So I, I, I hats off to the RMR group that they obviously had a strategic mission um, to, to leverage that buyout and, and expand their market share in the multifamily space. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, um, about three years ago, when I thought that that was the, the top of the market, um, I started to look, you know, I started looking into smaller operators and see what they're doing, preparing the ground, you know, to um, not to buy them at at the peak, but just start conversations and see if there's any interest. If there, because you always want to, if you're interested in something like this, and we're open to it, um, we essentially start talking to them. And you always need to talk to them, no matter you know what part of the cycle you are. And I remember speaking with one group that is uh, pretty familiar, so I'm not going to mention their name. And, um, you know, essentially at first, the partner was very excited about the notion of being, you know, of, of exiting the company. Um, they have a pretty good, you know, investor base. And our thought was, hey, we can buy their um, assets and, and acquire access to their investors. And then we're going to manage those relationships because, you know, we're going to, you know, eventually you know, once the transaction is, is closed, we're going to manage their assets. Um, and once the partner went to his other, you know, partners and discussed this and, and came back to us, essentially said, well, you know what, we feel really good about our, you know, uh, operations, then we're excited about um, the future. And we thought if someone wants, if we get the attention of, you know, like if, if they want to buy us, I think we have a lot more, you know, to do here and uh, we just want to hold on to it. Um, you know, long story short, we heard, um, you know, a, a few months ago that they were really struggling um, with their operations. So we haven't gotten to the part of uh, doing, you know, um, underwriting and analysis, in-depth analysis. And maybe by the end of the day, the answer would have been no, but it just, you know, interesting to see how, um, when everything is whatever, when it looks like everything is great, everyone's getting paid, um, then instead of um, exiting at what they thought was maybe the top, they said, well, I think the sky is the limit. And they kept holding out to the company. And now there's no way we're, you know, going to offer anything that we could have back then. And again, this is before we even looked at the financials. We haven't even gotten there. And um, but there's that's, I think, the, the issue. And I, I talked about it in the la on the last episode. The issue with real estate is that every time it's such a passionate investors have so much um, emotions attached to deals that into the cycle that if things are hard like they are right now, the, a lot of investors don't want to buy in uh, and don't want to invest. But you understand the cyclicality of real estate in five years when we're exiting in two years, three years. 
things are going to be different. And uh, on the flip side, when you're buying into the height of the market, then essentially um, you are very optimistic, but that might not last for the full five years. So mm -hmm. you almost have to be a little bit of a contrarian in your head to understand that what you're feeling right now, whether it's insecurity or um, you know security, that is probably going to change in the next three to five years. Yeah, it's funny you say that, Ellie. So I, it, it, when you said the the emotional attachment to some of the assets, it, it goes back to a deal that we pretty much, let, let's say, had under contract back in April, um, where the sellers dropped after, what was it, four weeks of negotiating the PSA, and we were at the last step. And the way I look at that asset today is because of the favorable loan assumption and the accretive debt that the property had on it, um, Right now, I'd buy that asset for about 20% less than what we were initially offering uh, just because of, of the, the fluctuations in the market. So I, I struggle with that. Exactly what you're saying is that there's a lot of emotion into it uh, or, or that kind of gets tied into some of these deals, but you, you have to separate that that distinction. And I, 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 I firmly believe that because it's it's all about um, the cyclical cycles. You, to your point, things change. You, you don't know what's going to happen in 60 days from now. So that's why you, you have to act based on the data and the numbers that you have. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, this uh, concludes our podcast uh, episode for today. Um, I had a great time talking um, with you guys about um, those topics. This is what is interesting to us as you know, owners, operators of multifamily of real estate. This is what we're you know, talking when we're sitting in the office, these are the things that we're talking about. So you get kind of um, uh, to get um, some insights into how we think about mm -hmm. things. Um, and we're going to keep recording this twice um, a month. Um, and uh, I think with that, I, I can uh, end the podcast today. Just one plug for um, our multifamily fund that is still open. Um, we've launched, uh, that's our second fund. Um, and we're focused on high yielding, um, high cash flow or solid cash flow um, assets in um, uh, across the US, class D value add. Uh, anything you wanna add to that? Yeah, for those of you that are, are eager, you know, to find opportunity and be able to capitalize on it. The beauty of a fund is that when we're raising funds together and we have candidly a pile of cash ready to deploy, that really puts us in a great position to be able to see opportunities and move on them very quickly. It's a very critical actual component for us to be able to effectively capture opportunities as we see them. So I really encourage you, you know, if you're looking for your best way to be able to really kind of optimize capitalizing on the opportunities that are coming in the market, then, you know, be proactive and join our fund with us. This is our second one. So it's not like this is the first time we've done this, um, you know, and come along on the journey with us because it's going to be good. Yeah. The Lake Multifamily Fund will be happy to partner with you. And until then, stay positive, keep it up, and I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.